Thank you for tuning into this sermon from New Life Student Ministries. Our goal is to inspire, equip, and support our students and families with biblically rich and God-centered teaching. These messages are meant to be supplemental and not substitutional for our weekly gathering. We hope this sermon is a blessing to you and your spiritual walk. That's great. Hey, Daniel chapter 6, if you've got your Bibles, that is where we're going to be tonight. Ooh, you look good after a snow day. Who had a snow day yesterday? Yes, actually, you guys, you guys don't really get snow days anymore. It's like an at-home work day. That's what they call it now, year post-COVID. I'm so sorry. That truly is a bummer. Um, it is good to see you this evening. If I have not had the honor or privilege of meeting you, my name is Tim, uh, and we're going to open the scriptures together. Daniel chapter 6. We're going to go through 24 verses. Like last week, this is a very, very popular text um, that most people know um, from like veggie tales. So listen here. Daniel 6 verse 1, it says this. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one. To whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes any petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Listen here in verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes the petition to any God or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed but makes his petition three times a day. Everyone say three times a day. Okay, I know you're still awake. Then the king, when he heard these words, 
was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, know, O king, that the, that is the law of the Medes and the Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. Then at, the, at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the de den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. What a happy ending to a text. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Spirit, we welcome you. Would you speak to us tonight? Father, I pray that you would set ablaze this evening faith in every single one of our hearts like nothing before. Would you come? Would you transform us to look a little bit more? like Jesus this evening. Come, have your way in your precious and holy name. And if you are with me, can you say amen? Amen. How many of you heard the story of Daniel and the lion's den? Yeah. Two stories back to back, we are getting to see a moment. Last week with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This week with Daniel, where a moment of testing comes before their faith. Last week we have a moment where we have King Nebuchadnezzar create this skinny 90-foot statue of himself. And he says every time you hear music, you got to bow your knee and you got to worship it. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, no, it's not even close to being worth it. So they get thrown into a fiery furnace. They survive. It's pretty cool. If you don't, haven't read the story, do it. Daniel 3. It's awesome. This week we have a similar moment. We have an older Daniel. He's elected as the third high official over all of King Darius's kingdom. And all of a sudden, it's noticed that he's pretty distinguished among the other two. And so naturally, a little bit of jealousy begins to cultivate. And so they try to find a way to get this guy out of a position of influence. And so they know that the only way to catch him in something that he will not compromise on is something to do with Daniel's God. Something about the way Daniel lived his life before his God, they knew he wouldn't compromise. Two weeks ago, we talked about how God is worthy of a life devoted to holiness. Last week, we talked about how God is worthy of a life devoted to worship. 
Tonight, I want to talk to you about a life, God being worthy of a life devoted to prayer. Everyone say prayer. Prayer. You know, prayer is something that's probably pretty common if you grew up in the church, and yet I'm willing to bet most of the people in here are uncomfortable participating in uncomfortable participating. It's kind of like an exposing thing. And, and you could sit there and say, no, not really. But if I were to ask you to stand here in a moment, and I were to ask you to find one other person in this room whom you don't know, and I were to ask you to pray for them, how comfortable would you be? It's a little awkward because it's like a foreshadow towards the end of the night, you know what I mean? If you're terrified right now, that's okay. This is a good place to be terrified. What happens? What happens when we start confronting this place of prayer? I think we see three things, the the classic Tim Shepard way. I'm going to give you three things that I think we see from this text. That Daniel uses prayer as an act of. Okay, number one, Daniel uses prayer as an act of dependence. Everyone say dependence. Dependence. I want you to look here in verse 11. It says, then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea. Everyone say petition and plea. Before his God. So we have all the satraps and the high officials out of jealousy. They go to King Darius and they say, hey, we think that you should sign an injunction that says that if anybody were to make any petition, any plea to any God or any man other than you for a month, they should die. And Darius goes, all right, that sounds pretty good. And he signs it without even thinking. And what's Daniel's response? Can you imagine this moment? A moment where the way you live your life in an instant gets put in the balance of life or death. I want you to notice something here. Who is the first person that Daniel runs to when he finds out about this ordinance? Or maybe the more important thing to ask Do you notice who he doesn't run to? Notice that he doesn't run to King Darius. Notice that he doesn't run to the other high officials or the other satraps. He runs to the living God. Let me put it this way. How many of you have siblings? Okay, good. You're going to be able to relate with this story. When I was growing up, I'm about to relate with the whole homeschooling crew in this place tonight. Oh yeah, I, as a older elementary going into junior high, fell in love with the greatest trilogy known to man to this day, the Lord of the Rings. Oh my goodness, I was, I was captivated with these movies. I'd watch them every, and, and here's my thing, I didn't just watch the movies. I watch what I watch what they call extended editions. Extended editions. Now if you haven't seen Lord of the Rings, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. If you haven't seen the extended editions to give you some context, all three movies paired together roughly is 11 and a half hours of cinema. It's awesome. Okay? I watch them at least twice a year. Ask my wife. It's fantastic, okay? Now here's the thing. Again, to my homeschooler crew. I didn't go to school when I was in elementary school. I was homeschooled. And when you're a homeschooler, you learn to entertain yourself by yourself all the time. 
Now here was like my normal routine. I'd wake up, I'd do school. Then once I finished school, my backyard became Pelennor Fields. It became Helm's Deep. It became Mordor. And I would do everything I could by myself to play my favorite character in The Lord of the Rings. And his name is Legolas, Legolas, however you want to say it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he's kind of cool. I'm, I'm totally nerding out. Give me two more minutes, all right? You'll get over it. Now here's the thing. If you know Legolas really well, you know he's got a couple different weapons. Obviously, he's really good with a bow and arrow. I used to do things that would probably get parents arrested today. I would take my bow and real arrows, and I'd go and I'd throw them on my trampoline. And I was a gymnast when I was in junior high and when I was in elementary school, so I knew how to do all the flips. And so I'd hop on my trampoline with all the arrows on the ground, and I'd start jumping And as the arrows would fly in the air, I'd grab them out of the air and I'd just start shooting them in random directions off the trampoline. It was awesome. The second set of weapons that Legolas has is he's got like two elven blades. You know what I mean? All my nerds know what I'm talking about, okay? Two elven blades. Now here's the thing. Knives are a really dangerous thing, but when mom and dad weren't at the house, we had these two kitchen knives that kind of looked like elven blades. And so... On occasion, mom and dad would leave the house. I'd pull out these knives as elven blades. I looked awesome, okay? Now, here's the thing. I had this moment where I would play with these knives so much, it kind of became like a part of who I was. There was a moment I was probably about nine years old. I was playing with these knives, and my sister was in the room, and she made me mad. I didn't cut her, I promise. But what I did do, what I did do, mom was upstairs, she made me mad, and I I made like the, like, (laughs) I'll do it. You know what I mean? All the siblings in here know what I mean. (laughs) It's like, I will cut you. I won't, but I will. And as long as you think I will, I've won, right? Right? And and so I had this moment where where I like somewhat threatened my sister with a knife as a nine-year-old. And she did what all loving, annoying, irritating sisters do. Exactly. She went screaming, Mom! Now here's the thing. When I would get disciplined as a kid, my mom had two stages of rage. Two stages of rage. The first stage of rage is she'd come down and I would have done something where she said, get up to my bedroom right now. Now, I grew up in the generation where spankings were still a thing. Daily a thing. And so my mom, I go up to her room, she walks up with her weapon of choice, the belt, a wooden spoon from the kitchen, one of the arrows that I would be playing with in the backyard, or the absolute worst was a fishing rod broken in half. She walk up now. That was first stage of rage. But I know that I would do something exceptionally wrong if she hit second stage of rage, which was go to your room and wait till your father gets home. And this was like twofold punishment. It was like, it was like you'd go to your room, but there'd be many a times where it was like four hours till dad came home. And you just like, you're just sitting there like a little homeschooler kid, like, <laughs> like I don't want to die. 
and the, the, the rhythm would be the same. I'd be in my room, I'd be terrified out of my mind. Dad came home. He walks in the house and it was always the same rhythm. He got home, mom and him went to, their, went to the bedroom and mom gave him the synopsis of the day. Did the kids do good or did Tim do bad? <laughs> I had two older sisters, it was like, yeah, whatever. They didn't get spanked nearly as much. And then the moment would come where I know they finished, I'd hear mom and dad's door open. He'd walk slowly to my room. And my dad, he's like, he's like military Vietnamese kung fu panda man. Like just, <laughs> he just had that look in his eye that like one day I hope I have to give my kids to like strike the fear of God. <laughs> and I don't need to say the rest of the story. My butt hurt for like two days, okay? <laughs> now here's, there's a point to the story, I promise. Ken, let me ask you, my dad, my mom, with the authority to issue consequence on what I had done wrong. If I were to plead for mercy, who would I need to go to? My dad or my mom? It's not a trick question, I promise. The one who's gonna issue punishment, right? How awkward would it have been if I had called my best friend and said, bro, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. How awkward would it have been if I had called my coach, my youth pastor, my sibling, and said, have mercy on me. You know why that would be weird? It's because none of those people could do anything about it. When Daniel heard that an injunction for his life was filed against him, he went to the one person he knew could do something about it. Are you with me tonight? When we look at our culture today and things start going south in your life, your default place, my default place is to run to the people who are close to us. You'll run to mom, to dad. Maybe your mom and dad isn't a safe place, so you run to your best friend. Maybe your best friend's not a good place, so you run to your coach. And all of a sudden, here's what we do. We start putting hope in people in our lives who are never meant to have certain responsibility in our lives. And then as you get older and as you watch your parents, you see the hope start to shift. They start putting their hope in political figures, in governmental systems, in presidents, in vice presidents, and on and on and on. The first thing that Daniel is teaching us right here is, hey, 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 when life starts going south, there's only one place to run. That's your true source of life. You know what it is? Prayer. 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 Prayer as an act of dependence. If God is the one who knows all things, why wouldn't you spend the most time consulting with him? If God is the one who actually has the power to act and change your life, why wouldn't you run to him first? when things start going south. This is the first thing that we have to see is that Daniel did not just see prayer as a means to, to want God, but as a means to need God. Are you with me? This is the core of the Christian faith that we realize we're, we were created to need him. Are you with me tonight? Prayer is an act of dependence. Number two, he used prayer as an act of discipline. Ooh, this one's gonna bother people. Verse 11, look at it. 
He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. Hear this, he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So when things are going well, Daniel's getting down three times a day to pray to his God. When things go south in a moment, he gets down on his knees three times a day and prays to his God. You know, one of the things that I think is like rough when we read scripture is we almost dehumanize these biblical figures. As if we could say, Daniel always wanted to get down three times a day to pray to his God. As if Daniel never got frustrated, irritated, angry. As if Daniel's faith never waned like ours does today. No, 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 hear me, brothers and sisters. He was human. He was living in a time where his people were oppressed and occupied by a foreign government. The king he was serving was oppressing his nation. Three times a day, he taught himself a discipline, despite how he feels, despite what circumstances look like. Get on your knees and pray. Pray, 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 pray. You know, there's nothing like beautiful about talking about that and doing it. It doesn't sound good. Like, can you imagine your life? You wake up in the morning, the first thing you do is you get on your knees and pray. You head to lunch, and the first thing you do before you head to the cafeteria is find a spot, get on your knees and pray. You're about to go to bed, and before you go to bed, you get on your knees and pray. You know how inconvenient that sounds? Because we got life, we're doing things, people to talk to, social media to scroll through, all the above. But Daniel saw it as a discipline. You know why I think we have a hard time with discipline? Because I think we see it as the opposite to spontaneity. It's like to be disciplined means you can't be fun. All of my people in here who love to judge people who go to the gym all the time know what I mean. It's like, well, yeah, I could have six-pack abs, but why would I go to the gym every day? Right? Right? Like if you've ever run a long race before, you know this is actually true. Where it's like, hey, if you actually are disciplined, you know a race is coming. If I were to say, hey, student ministries, we're running a marathon in March. Yeah. And all my cross country kids in here and all my disciplined type A's were like, let's do it. They're up at 6 a.m. tomorrow running three miles every day. They're getting ready. And all my like type B's and type C's are like, ugh. This is the worst thing ever. And then you watch the difference come race day. All the type B's and C's are like pulling their calf muscles and flopping off to the side and dying. And all the type A's are like, let's do another one. Discipline cultivates an appetite for the uncomfortable. So that when uncomfortable situations come, it's not a foreign environment. Are you with me? John Piper says it like this. Let's put that quote up, Grady. Could it be that discipline is not the boring substitute for spontaneity and power, but discipline is the garden where spontaneity and power grows? Could it actually be 
that to be men and women of prayer day by day by day, and you're crying out and you're complaining because you've never seen God move, could be because you refused to look at God day by day. Are you with me? Daniel used prayer as an act of discipline. Number three, and let's go ahead and invite the band back up, is that Daniel used prayer as an act of desire. Everyone say desire. You know what I love about this story? Is Daniel didn't hesitate. He didn't hesitate. When an injunction was filed, and if he were to pray, he was going to lose his life. In other words, Daniel said, you can take my life before you will take my prayer. Let me say that again. You can take my life before you will take my prayer. I read this story of Daniel. I read the story last week of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I have to ask myself this question. Why is it that Daniel sees prayer as so precious to him? Why is it that we should see prayer as so precious to us? Why? What is it about a moment where a king is asking three godly men to bow their knee to an idol and without hesitation they say no. And then again, it's reiterated to him. No, no, no. I need you to understand. If you don't, I'm going to burn you alive. And the response is, we don't need to give you an explanation. God is enough. What is it about a moment for Daniel sitting here, understanding that the, the, the second he walks up into his upper chamber, the second he opens those windows towards his city, that he gets down on his knees knowing that the, the moment he gets down on his knees, he's sealing fate. He knew the law of the land. He knew that King Darius could not reverse the injunction. He knew he's sealing his fate when he's getting down. What is it about prayer? What is it about God that makes him doing this so worth it, three times a day. What is it? What is it about God that would make Noah in Genesis chapter six, look at the world and as ridiculous as it looks and as ridiculous as it sounds, he would hear the voice of the Lord and he'd begin to build a boat, hearing that is God was gonna flood the earth. What a wild assumption. What a wild accusation. And yet he did it. What is it about Abraham having his first baby boy born to him, cherishing the life of his son, knowing that a nation is gonna come from him and hearing from his God, take him to Mount Moriah and I want you to sacrifice him. What is it about Abraham that didn't hesitate? He took his boy, he brought him up the mountain, he bound him, he put him on an altar, ready to take his life. What is it about Moses 
hearing the voice of God from a burning bush that tells him after such a long time, go back to Egypt. <laughs> You're gonna be the one I use as a response to the cries of my people. Go back to the place that you dread the most. What was it about Moses that led him to go back? What was it about Joshua heading into the promised land, leading the people of Israel after 40 years in the wilderness and his first obstacle is the city of Jericho. And instead of taking it by force, his God says, nah, I want you to march around it once every day. And on the seventh day, I want you to march around it seven times. And then I want you to shout and watch how awesome I am. What is it about a man that can listen to such a crazy, crazy directive from a God and yet he gets to watch brick by brick fall? What is it about Esther knowing that her life is on the line and she goes to the inner court of the king knowing that her life could be taken in an instant and yet God chose her to be the ambassador, to be the spokesperson, to be the symbol of hope for the nation of Israel. What is it about her? She's gonna walk in in faith knowing her life is on the line. What is it about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Something so strong where they'll refuse to bow their knee. What is it about Daniel that despite whatever injunction is filed, he will bow his knee three times a day, knowing his life is on the line? What is it about the Apostle John not willing to compromise on his faith so he gets boiled in oil alive? and then exiled to Patmos for the rest of his life. What is it about James, the half-brother of Jesus, not willing to wane on his faith, so they throw him from the pinnacle of the temple and bash his head in? What is it about Paul that will preach the gospel, be dragged out of the city, beaten and stoned near to death, have the crowd walk back into the city, have himself stand back up, shake it off, and walk back in and keep preaching the gospel. What is it? What is it? What is it? What is it? I'll tell you what it is. It's a testimony. It's a story of men and women who knew know, when you genuinely know, look at me, when you genuinely know who your God is, the balance of life and death is not even comparison. Life itself won't look more precious than Jesus. And this is what's going to happen. You're going to start living this way. You're going to start finding Jesus in the place of prayer. He's going to start giving you his thoughts. He's going to start shaping the way that you live your life. He's going to start reshaping your desires. He's going to start reshaping the way you love your family, the way you love your friends, the way you see the world. And this is what's going to happen. People are going to start asking, why would you do that? 
Why would you live your life that way? Why would you submit your will to a God who doesn't seem present at all? And you know what the answer is? You found the well that never runs dry. You found living water that quenches every thirst that you got. You found the bread of life that satisfies every hunger, every desire. You found the one in whom your soul delights. Hear me, brothers and sisters. And he is found always in the place of prayer. Can I invite you to do something uncomfortable, if you're willing? Can I ask you to get on your knees? something about this God that makes this position so valuable, that makes this position the most powerful position you will ever take in your entire life. Something about this God makes this position, a man, a woman, on their knees, so powerful. It's this position where we can watch a country's trajectory be redefined. It's from this position that you can watch your family's trajectory be redefined. It's from this trajectory that you can see your perspective about who God is be redefined. It's from this position you can get to know the Alpha and the Omega. that God is going to love you in a way that you don't experience in any other way. So do me a favor. I want you to bow your head. And before we get uncomfortable, though this might be uncomfortable for you, I want to invite you invite you into an act of faith right now as the band's going to play over you. When we get on our knees and we come before the Lord, and if, as best you can, as best you can, I want you to give him your undivided attention right now. Don't be so concerned about the person to your left or to your right. Give the Lord, if you're willing, your undivided attention right now. And I want you to think about everything in your life that's difficult right now, that's hard right now, that you're anxious about right now, that you're fearful about right now. It could be the way our, our, the, the way our, our country is right now. The unsettling, the unknowing, what's God going to do? It could be your family right now, parents going through divorce. It could be your mental turmoil right now. You feel lonely out of your mind and nobody knows about it and nobody would know about it because the way that you are, but you know what you're carrying. It could be some form of secret addiction that you got going on in your life that nobody knows about and you don't want to tell anybody about because it's exposing and it's embarrassing. I don't care what it is. I want you to think about the weakest, most fragile area of your life. And in this moment, on your knees, focused on the Lord, 
I want you to give it to him. What does that look like? It's this, saying, Lord, I trust you with this. I trust you with this. Show me how to depend on you. Show me the truth that I need you right now. because of anything you've done. If his love and his delight is based on what you've done, then it's pretty pathetic. But if his love and delight on you is based upon what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, then he has nothing but good things to speak over you right now. Thanks again for listening to this message from New Life Student Ministries. If you want to keep up with what's happening with us, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at NL Student Ministries.